O grant that through the spoken word and through the written word, we may behold the living word, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I couldn't possibly do that. He stared at the committee and stood there. They'd just offered him not the job he'd applied for, but the one above it, the senior position in the whole division. He'd be running an entire department, a huge budget, overseeing a wide range of the company's operations. He simply wasn't up to it. Well, said the chairman, we think you can. Of course, it's going to be a big responsibility, but we can help you. We believe you're the right person for the job. And we're going to change some things around so you get the right assistance, specialist advice, all of that. You'll have everything you need so you can do it. Well, how about that verse in today's gospel? If you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. How do you feel about that? Are you up to the job? Of course not. But worse is to come if you retain anyone's sins, they're retained. If anyone imagines they're ready and willing to take on that task, they need to go back to school for some very firm lessons in humility. So writes Tom Wright in his introduction to this passage in John for Everyone. We have three things in this passage, a commission, a gift, and a command. And then it's followed by evidence that all this was not only possible, but inevitable and part of the Father's new creation. But we need to start with those ten all locked away for fear of the crowd, the fear of the Jews. Palm Sunday was wonderful. Jesus had entered into Jerusalem with the crowd singing Hosanna, but so soon after that, the same crowds were shouting, crucify, crucify. They'd got their own way. The chief priests had got their way, and now they were hidden away, thinking that there's only going to be a knock on the door, and if you like, the secret police were going to come and take them away. They were mopping up the small fry. And that was them, the small fry. They were frightened. And they were hidden away. Bishop Stephen Verney comments on this passage in his little booklet, Water into Wine, as knowing that feeling very well. Because he was a British intelligence officer in Crete during the war. And he remembers a number of times when he and the partisans were locked away for fear of the German troops coming to find them, anxiously fearing the knock on the door, which would certainly be the end of their life. And actually, in a different way, many of us can identify with the fear of going out in these COVID times. An awful lot of people have shut themselves away, have rarely, if ever, gone out. And actually, now I've found the prospect rather terrifying. The idea of crowds is difficult to cope with. It's dangerous out there. Crowds are a source of infection. Who has touched this trolley before me? The Easter experience of the disciples, you know, we're only second Sunday of Easter at the moment, was not unutterable joy and rejoicing, at least not for a time. It was filled with confusion, fear, unbelief reports, and a hostile Jerusalem. And when we read this account in John's Gospel, I think we shouldn't assume it was only the ten that were in that room, the ten remaining disciples. Thomas was absent. We don't know where Thomas was or why he wasn't there. We need to remember that none, none of them lived in Jerusalem. It wasn't a question of them going home somewhere. And, of course, Judas had hanged himself. 
The Gospels almost systematically write out the role of female disciples and followers in the Gospel accounts. There are a few little hints, particularly in Luke. It's highly likely that that upper room not only contained the ten, but a number of the women who followed and helped and took part in the mission. And that Jesus actually addressed them all. In which case, they were all commissioned, given the Holy Spirit and the command that as the Father has sent me, so have I sent you. But back to this forgiving of sins, Lark. Jesus thinks those present can do it. And he's not asking if they'd like to have a try. He's giving them a command to go and do it. But hang on. Wasn't this what caused all the huge problem with the Pharisees and the chief priests in Jesus' ministry? Wasn't the justifiable, in many ways, outrage when Jesus said to people, your sins are forgiven? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, they'd be quite right. And it is God who's going to forgive the sins, not you, but he's going to forgive sins through you and me. The command comes after the gift received the Holy Spirit and then the commission to be sent as the Father sent Jesus. The point of receiving the Holy Spirit is not to actually give the disciples wonderful experiences of things. It's so they can do what Jesus did for the whole world what Jesus had been doing in Israel. It was to enable them to reach out beyond Israel. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. They were to be a sign, an instrument, and a foretaste of the kingdom of heaven. To Israel expanding its borders to all the Gentiles. And they needed the Holy Spirit to give them the strength and the power to do that. I think probably most of us are aware of the Great Commission always told the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel, to go in all the world and out to all the world and preach the Gospel and teach them and baptise them. But we often forget that there are two other Great Commissions in, in the New Testament. Luke has one and John has this one. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And that's the clue to it. How does the unique achievement of Jesus in one time, in one place, among one nation at one point in history, how does that get into all the world in all time and in all space? To peoples and cultures who are not thinking about God's kingdom, who aren't thinking about how God is going to rule over his people, they're not waiting for a Messiah, they've never heard of such a thing, and they don't look at the world in the way the Jews have been taught to look at the world. The long story of God and his people Israel is reaching its climax as the people and the gospel of God is sent out through the Jews to all the world, and we are the inheritors of that. And the disciples are to start. You know, they say that uh, seeing is believing. A rather ill-informed bishop, who I'll not mention, a few years back, um, opined that actually if we'd had cameras and modern technology around this time, we'd be able to demonstrate clearly the truth of the resurrection. The camera never lies. Well, we know the camera does lie. We see it often enough actually on our newspapers. We see it with clever tricks that Photoshop enables us to perform. We see it with ambiguous pictures that could be one thing or it could be another, and it's not clear when it was taken or who took it. 
and the resurrection appearances are full of ambiguities. Mary thinks Jesus is the gardener. The disciples on the Emmaus Road walk for hours with him without recognising either his face or his voice. The disciples thought the women at the tomb who brought a report of the empty tomb that it was a foolish tale. Oh dear, the poor dears are hysterical. Uh, just take the tablets and lie down somewhere, dear. And Jesus appeared to the disciples after they'd been discussing the report of the disciples on the Emmaus Road, how they'd recognised Jesus in the breaking of bread, and then he'd hot-footed it back to Jerusalem to see the rest of the disciples. And then Jesus appears to them. And there's something really strange about this. Because Jesus doesn't say, it's me, I'm back, it's true, look at my face, look at my eyes, hear my voice. No, he says, look at my hands and look at my feet. For it's the hands and the feet and the wounded body of Jesus that's the key to this and also the key to Thomas's so-called unbelief but also his commission. Thomas wasn't going to be taken in or deceived by the reports of his colleagues. He knew that sometimes people believed all sorts of incredible things. You know, in these days, you know, the there are all sorts of reports of aliens and UFOs and goodness knows what, and, um, and Elvis Presley having been seen shopping in Sainsbury's and stupid things like that. No, we're not taken in at times by silly reports, and Thomas knew that people could be deceived. It could have been a vision. It could have been an angel. It could have been a heavenly manifestation of Jesus appearing in the minds of his followers who longed to see him back, but it wasn't Jesus himself. It wasn't enough for Thomas to be faced with this. He didn't particularly want a ticket to heaven, wherever that was. He wanted to know if heaven had cracked open and creation was done anew and the old order done away. Not a VIP ticket to heaven card. He wanted to know that it had all changed. And if he didn't see the bodily Jesus with the wounds in his hands and the hole in his side and could reach out and touch them, then death had not been vanquished. The grave had triumphed. There was nothing new, only the memory of a wonderful teacher and a rather spectacular vision. A wonderful teacher to follow, if only you would listen. But Thomas had no interest in being belonging to a dead hero's society. You may be aware of the film Babette's Feast, the story of a pious Danish coastal community who live in great simplicity and poverty and revere their blessed deceased leader, led by his two um, spinster daughters. Washed up on the seashore, along with some of her possessions, is Babette, a refugee from the revolution in France. These people, then she served them, and they ate only salted cod and drank water. They had a very simple life. There was not an awful lot of joy in that community, but dogged remembrance of what had been in the past. But Babette had inherited some money. Actually, it was... Um, a lottery winning, a huge lottery winning. And as the village always met every year for a solemn meal to remember their dead leader, Babette asked, 
could she cook the meal for them this year and provide it? And with some reluctance, they agreed. And it was a quite transformative, magnificent meal. There was a sharing of confession and of reconciliation. Lives were made new. Relationships were restored. Jesus was not a dead hero, but a live saviour who passed through death to life, and who also provided a meal that can reconcile and transform, and a touch that can heal. And Thomas wanted to see the evidence that that was true. Not a ghost or an angel or a heavenly vision, but the flesh and blood of Jesus. It's usually assumed that Jesus' reply to Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe, was a sort of a mild rebuke, but also an encouragement to all the rest of us after the ascension, who of course have never seen um, the bodily Jesus, uh, that we too believe. Well, no, that latter part's true, but Thomas's disbelief is more important, for Thomas was insisting that it was the same body that stood in front of them that had been placed in the tomb, that creation had been made anew, that the grave had been vanquished and was now no longer an end, but a pathway to the new creation of God, a touching place between all that is and all that will be. It's interesting, Jesus is recognised by his hands breaking bread and not by his face, by speaking Mary's name to her, by making breakfast on the beach for his disciples, by encouraging Thomas to touch him, and also by persuading Mary to let go of him, by being recognised by his hands and his feet and not by his face, and by eating a piece of grilled fish. We've all been so bereft of touch in this pandemic and realised how important it is to us as human beings. And as we look forward with eager anticipation to once again being able to touch each other, children, grandchildren. Let's remember that sacredness of touch. Who can forget Princess Diana touching AIDS patients when few others would? Let's give thanks for those nurses and carers who touched and held the hands of those of the dying at the point of death on COVID wards. And as we move forward slowly, we hope into a more normal life. Let's remember that touch which is part of the new creation and those meals that we celebrate, both on this table, the Lord's table, but also at home and in many places that are truly sacramental, where we share in the heavenly banquet. And remember and give thanks for Thomas, who was honest enough to say what needed to be said. Our collect again. Risen Christ, for whom no door is locked and no entrance barred, open the doors of our hearts that we may seek the good of others and walk the joyful road of sacrifice and peace to the praise of God the Father. We confess our faith in the words of the Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. 
We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, of one being begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. He was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man. And for our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures and ascended into heaven, where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. <laughs> 